Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host for the next hour here on WFMU, Freeform Station of the Nation, live from Jersey City in the great state of New Jersey. Thanks for being with me. I've got a great show for you this evening. So happy you have chosen to spend some time with me. We're going to be speaking with Ashley Shu, author of the book Against Technoableism, Rethinking Who Needs Improvement. And if you go to the playlist at WFMU.org, click Playlist and Comments, you can see that Ashley Shu is an Associate Professor of Science, Technology, and Society at Virginia Tech and specializes in disability studies and technology ethics. And uh, I'm really excited about this interview because it is shedding light on the experience of disabled people and the disabled communities um, with respect to all of the technology that surrounds us. And what what are the ways of thinking that have informed the built environment, the decisions that society has made to install certain kinds of technologies and not to install other s- sorts of technologies. So we'll, we'll get into it. Ashley's the expert, so I'm going to let her uh, describe it. Uh, before I get to the interview, I want to I uh, give you a, on a separate topic, I want to give you a little schedule heads up that is um, technology related. This Wednesday morning, okay, so it's going to be Wednesday, January 24, station manager Ken Friedman is going to be on his regular morning time slot that goes from 9 a.m. to 12 noon Eastern time. And starting at, I think, if I'm right, uh, around 10 a.m., station manager Ken is going to air an interview that he did with the band Negative Land, a band whose music I have played in the outros here a number of times over the years. And uh, as, as Ken um, told me earlier, the conversation did get into some technology topics that are, that are highly relevant <laughs> to the things that we talk about and even some of the people who we have talked about on recent shows, and I'm not going to give it away. So I hope you will um, set, set an alarm, set a calendar invitation for yourself to tune in to Station Manager Ken's show this Wednesday morning, January 24, to listen to his interview with members of the band Negative Land. And I know I am looking forward to hearing that interview as well. Now, speaking of interviews, why don't we go ahead and get to our interview for this evening? Again, it's with uh, Ashley Shu talking about her book, Against Technoableism. If you would like to join in the live listener comments, go to WFMU.org. Click playlist and comments. And if you're listening in the future to an archive or podcast, go to tectonic.fm, T E C H tonic.fm, and find the January 22, 2024 show. Click the playlist there and you can read all about it. Let's go ahead and listen to my interview with Ashley Shu here on Tectonic on WFMU. Ashley Shu, welcome to Tectonic. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so pleased to have you on the show, Ashley. I really enjoyed reading your book, Against Technoableism, Rethinking Who Needs Improvement. This is a book about disability. And so I thought we could start just by talking about, for starters, the number of people who have a disability today. You write that more than 15% of the current population has some form of identified disability. Later in the book, you make the point that if people live long enough, everybody's bound to become disabled with something or other. So right now, they may be what you call a tab, (laughs) temporarily able-bodied, but eventually everyone joins the ranks of the disabled, and you're disabled yourself. So you're writing from a perspective of knowledge and expertise, Given how important the subject is for everyone, mm-hmm. why is it, do you think, that so much of the built environment seems to be hostile to or at least difficult for disabled people? 
Yeah, so tab isn't my term. It's this term um, that's used by some, uh, you know, people uh, in the disability rights movement. It's gone sort of out of favor, actually. And I, I mentioned it in the book, um, but it's gone out of favor because because we think you should care about disability issues whether or not you're disabled, right? So just to threaten you um, that you might become disabled so you should care about this um, doesn't really have the sort of um, oomph that, you know, these things matter whether or not you're going to become disabled. So when we talk about the built environment, um, you know, I, there's a sense in which at least everyone will be temporarily disabled, right? Um, um, you know, people break ankles and bones and some of those mend. Some of those mend not as well as others. Um, um, you know, some of these things maybe don't constitute a disability in the long run, but having a built environment that invites lots of ways of being uh, to be there, I think is really, you know, important to community, um, to being able to forge community at all, but to just being able to be a public person, which I think, you know, access to spaces is something a lot of non-disabled people take for granted. So when we talk about things like curb cuts and ramps um, and doors that are easily operable, so that, you know, even in the ADA specifications, there are guidelines about certain doors should not be, you know, heavier for an external door, heavier than 10 pounds of force to open for an internal door, um, heavier, it can't be heavier than five pounds of force. Like in in practice, that's usually not, not the case, right? Um, one of the things that I have my students do is actually we have a couple pressure gauges and they go test different doors on campus. And then I report all of the bad doors as part of this exercise. Um, but there are all these like elements of, of the built environment that I think if you're a non-disabled person, you don't have to think about a lot. And some of those are how things are built. I also think about acoustics as part of this, right? So often we talk about ramps and wheelchairs and, and these sorts of things, but there are lots of spaces where if you are hard of hearing or if you have some sort of auditory processing disorder, participating in a space is made much more difficult. I think about noisy restaurants, right? Where everyone's talking um, and without the right sort of like situation where there's sound absorption, um, or if you're in an environment where you're supposed to be hearing something, someone, but you're hearing the wrong things given the space you're in. I mean, that can, that can go right to your participation as well. Um, so there are all these sorts of facets. I mean, I also think about this, um, you know, people with food allergies are part of the disability community, like label your foods if you're having a buffet so that you don't accidentally uh, poison or kill someone, um, right? Sort of access to all the things everyone else has um, is not something that disabled people can count on in the same way. You mentioned teaching your students. I should have said in the intro that you're a professor at Virginia Tech. Your experience at Virginia Tech figures into a couple of the anecdotes that you tell in the book, one of which it involved a friend of yours who's disabled and who needs access into her, I forget if it was a car or a van, uh, from her wheelchair. And mm -hmm. she had an important appointment on campus, but she could not make it into the van because it was football game day. Mm -hmm. And the entire parking lot was filled and someone had parked into the striped zone right next to her disabled parking spot, which is supposed to be left empty so that the disabled user can gain access to the vehicle mm -hmm. via a wheelchair. And so there was no way for her to make her appointment because the police were not going to send a tow truck and, and there was no way to get her in. Oh, yeah. The uh, the apartment complex, you know, when she gets someone on the line, I mean, it was a football game day. So everyone's parked everywhere, like all wildly. But someone had parked in the hashtagged, uh, the hashed out space that that's, has all the lines on it for her to load and unload. And um, her apartment complex said, we'll call the police. Um, she called the non-emergency police line and, they're and they said it was the responsibility of her leasing office, um, right? So then she calls the leasing, leasing office to tell them, hey, the police say it's your responsibility. Can you call the tow company to which the leasing office was like, it's a football game day. We can't possibly call them. And this, so then she called, like, she was just batted back and forth. And, and she had things to do, right? So so the sort of assumption that disabled people don't, you know, need to go places wasn't true. She had volunteered for an event at the library and she had to basically call in and say she couldn't uphold her obligations uh, just because some guy had parked uh, really close to her van and, and she couldn't get in and out of it. Yeah. 
One of the things that I took away from the book is this idea of the kind of awareness of disability that is encouraged or, or spread by default by a lot of media narratives and just commonly how people think about disability, which is that it is a problem. And disability being a problem calls for a solution. You're right. I intend to take seriously the experiences of disabled people in a world that often considers technology the solution to the, quote, problem of disability. And later on, discussing the idea of ableism, this, this perspective of looking at disability as a problem that needs to be solved, you write about it as a perspective that, quote, disabled people must be altered to be worthy. I liked the counterpoint to that. You bring up the work of philosopher Elizabeth Barnes, who writes that disability is not a bad difference. It's a mere difference. Can you tell me more about these two contrasting perspectives of disability as a, as a bad difference versus a mere difference? Yeah, and I, I want to say I don't deny that some disabilities um, actually involve a lot of pain. Right. So we we have things um, like um, uh, myalgic uh, encephalopathy, encephalopathy, something like that. Um, MECFS. Um, let, let's use the initials. Um, I can say those which often causes like severe fatigue and, and can cause a lot of pain. You know, when I think about um you know, I, I'm an amputee, phantom pain is painful, right? So it isn't to say that disabilities can't cause pain. And, you know, certainly I think pain should be avoided and how we talk about it is actually really problematic to people often getting the care they need. But when we're talking about mere difference versus bad difference, the category of disability is really large, right? And not every disabled person is suffering, um, so we often talk about people as suffers from a particular disability, but that's really presumptuous um, on our parts to say, because um, it assumes sort of like sort of a, a, a moral and like all consuming badness that comes with a disability. And while there can be bad aspects, some of them are socially bad. Right. So we're discriminated against in employment. Right. If we talk about why we need things like the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, uh, we're discriminated against in, in sort of public life. Right. Things aren't set up to include us often. Um, you sort of so, so some, some of the bad things that are bad about being disabled have nothing to do with our bodies, have nothing to do with our minds and have a lot to do with sort of societal expectations, notions about like how productive we should be. And things that are very loaded with like moral value in a sort of capitalist productive mode um, that shouldn't have moral value. Uh, I mean, I think about disability as a neutral term. So thinking through it that way, um, you know, it's it's a descriptor. And I also think about some of the, I don't know, the fun rhetoric, um, but there's this notion that comes out of deaf studies that I really like. And of course, not all deaf people consider themselves disabled. So I don't want to step on any toes by, by mentioning this, uh, but I love the idea of deaf gain. So we talk about hearing loss. Um, and there's this idea within the deaf community, within deaf scholarship about like the things you gain when you can't hear, right? So sort of um, signed language might be one of those. Um, deaf community itself, um, sort of deaf inside life and jokes and relating to each other in, in ways that, you know, most hearing people don't know about. You know, I also think about this. So I wear hearing aids. I took them out a second ago. You might have seen that on camera because um, they were making weird noises. So I took out my hearing aids. Um, and I remember when I, I first got my, my hearing aids, I'm hard of hearing from chemotherapy, right? I had a particular type of chemotherapy that led to constant ringing in my ears, which is honestly a lot more annoying than being hard of hearing um, and, and, and hearing loss. So, so I have those things. I'm not deaf. I don't know ASL. I have a lot of range still left, but you know, we're sitting down to dinner. First time with the hearing aids on, everyone was chewing so loud. It was the most annoying thing. And I, I have kids um, and they were probably like four and six at the time. And I just remember thinking, I can't live like this. 
All of these people are the most annoying people in the world. You know how the sound of chewing and several people with their different mouth noises, and it's just disgusting. Um, I just took out my hearing aids for dinner, before dinner every day after that for a while, um, and it was much better, right? I got to experience a little bit of that um, that deaf gain, where it was actually better for my life that I, I couldn't hear a particular range of sounds and, and nicer, less gross. Um, and I could enjoy my dinner with like a lowered volume on, on everything um, that was going on around me. And so sometimes when people talk about deaf gain, they often talk about sort of the moment of the day they have to like stop hearing, right? So they're done with like work or whatever, where they're like forced into existing in a hearing world. And there's, there's just the relief of taking it off or not having to focus in the way you were before if you're doing like some sort of lip reading, which is very like cognitively stressful to do all the time. Um, you know, this sort of, whew, isn't this better? Well, Ashley, your book is called Against Technoableism. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the role of technology in all of this. We've talked about the experience of disabled people in a built environment that, as you say, is, is often not inclusive of their needs. So often, as you write throughout this book, technology is presented as the saving force, even a redemptive force for people with disabilities. You write that so many of our stories about technology and disability are about technologies as redemptive, as having the power to normalize disabled people to make us, quote, overcome our disabilities. As one example, you write about a new bionics center at MIT in which the lead professor is talking about his, and he's disabled himself, and he's talking about his solution which you write is not more thoughtful, well-informed tech, but more better, more advanced, more expensive tech. Yeah, I mean, you're describing um, sort of where I'm talking about the Center for Bionics that Hugh Hare has, and he's been with the MIT Media Lab for a while. He's also been like on the front page of like every amputee magazine I receive. He's been on the front of like Wired magazine. And I always think the coverage like plays very different externally than it does internally when we're talking about amputee communities. So he's a double amputee, baloney amputee, not baloney, the sandwich meat, but below the knee. Um, so he has knees. You know, when I talk about double amputees, that's an important thing to note um, because people with, of course, a knee joint have usually more function um, and an easier time getting prosthetics fit and just like a long list of things because 70% of amputees are below knee amputees. And he was a world-class climber um, when he uh, got frostbite and lost his feet. And so so a very athletic guy became an engineer. Um, so it's a story that that is pretty I guess, uplifting. Um, I always also think about like the sort of positionality of being a world-class athlete and then a world-class engineer. And what is it to be world-class? Um, and like, what does it mean that you, you know, might leave out of some of how you think about things? But he has this quote, I don't see disability. I only see bad technology. That's the quote, right? It's linking disability directly to technology and that the thing that addresses disability is technology and these things are intimately linked um, you know for him and for his work he also has very fancy ankles that he programs himself the biome foot um, and I remember you know after I saw the biome at an amputee coalition meeting I was in my prosthetist office and sometimes I like to just ask questions and then like sit back and listen and I was like what do you think about that biome um, you know and then and, and just like wanting whatever hot gossip uh, my prosthetist could throw at me. And so we, 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 we talked about it and I asked about my body. Hey, would we ever want to fit me with a biome? Just, I was not interested in it, but was curious. And my prosthetist told me I wouldn't walk better with it. Because of the microprocessor, it was going to be heavier than any ankle I've ever maneuvered on. And I'm always like, I don't even get like cosmetic things on my prosthesis because it adds weight, right? I don't want the extra skins or whatever that they have to like match my leg to my other leg which your legs change color. That doesn't even make sense to do. Um, there is this like sense in which uh, having an ankle like that 
actually would make me walk worse. I would limp harder. My gait would get worse, even though this is being shared in all of these spaces on the front of all of these magazines, getting free advertising um, and all of these things. He has a TED talk where he's dancing uh, with one of the Dancing with the Stars contestants who uses these, these ankles at some point. But the fact is, if you don't have a lot of core strength, holding extra weights at the ends of your limbs is harder. So we're looking at very athletic people using these. Of course, they use them well. And of course, they were tested in VA clinics, which is where a lot of prosthetics are initially tested. And that means they were mostly on military bodies. And that just doesn't export in the way people think. Our, our bodies, um, you know, all amputee bodies are different from one another, right? All of our residual limbs are slightly different shapes, but also how we become amputees is very different. And 55% and of amputations that take place in the United States each year are due to complications from diabetes or peripheral artery disease. And that population skews in a way that probably will not benefit from that technology, even though it's billed as being this amazing thing. It can restore your gait. You'll get into all these activities you didn't used to be able to. The way it's described and the way it's pumped up in the media is completely life-changing and something you need to ask your prosthetist about if you're an amputee. Like, really is very different from the fact that most insurances won't cover this ankle. It's very expensive out of pocket. Most amputees have trouble affording uh, the limbs that they do have. It, many insurances only cover 80%. Um, and then you're left with 20% on whatever um, device you're looking at, which can be thousands or tens of thousands of dollars if you're an above knee amputee and you need a knee joint. It's just, it neglects the reality that we live in at the same time celebrating a technology, A, most of us won't benefit from anyway, and B, most of us can't afford. Um, so, so you know, when, when he says, I don't see disability, I see bad technology, I think that's in a really sort of um, elite, privileged user status that really is very different than, than being what uh, the cyborg Jillian Vaisa calls a common cyborg. It also seems like over the long run, a lower tech prosthesis would last longer and fail less often than something that has microprocessors and code running and may need updates and constant configuration. I mean, isn't it the case that a, a biome would be more likely to, to fail or, or have a bug at some point? Don't get in the water. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm not supposed to go below a certain depth with my carbon fiber. Um, and I, I do have a, I think of my foot as very fancy. I saw the price that my insurance paid for it. Um, I have a fancy foot. I love it. But it is also like a static. It doesn't have any computerized components. Um, and if it broke, like you can't really fix the carbon fiber if it were to break, but I would have to try really hard to break it. Although I learned this week that it is rated for temperatures between 23 degrees Fahrenheit and 122 degrees Fahrenheit. And I found out because one of my amputee groups had asked about my, like someone was asking about our foot type, someone who also has my foot type, and whether he should be worried about going for a walk outside while the temperatures are so low where he lives. And it turns out after we all looked up the manual for our feet, um, that indeed, um, prolonged exposure to low temperatures can cause cracks in the resin that holds our little carbon fibers together. So now I have a whole new fear as of two days ago, thanks to this weather um, that has been, been coming across some parts of the United States, that uh, I, I, I don't want to void my warranty. <laughs> you know, non-disabled people don't have to consider that, right? I, I, I think that's also one of the ways in which disabled people are always having to do extra like mental math about what things will cost us that just don't even occur to, the, to a non-disabled person. And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst, I'm your host. We are halfway through my interview with Ashley Shu, author of the book, Against Technoableism, Rethinking Who Needs Improvement. We're having a good conversation on the comment board. If you'd like to join in, go to wfmu.org. Click playlist and comments. 
and you can participate or not. You can just read what other people are writing if you'd like that. Let's go ahead and listen to the second half of my interview with Ashley Shu about her book, Against Technoableism, here on WFMU Tectonic. Another aspect of this technoableism or technosolutionism that fits into this is this fetishization of the new, new, the shiny, the, the most innovative solution. And you write somewhere along the way about conferences sometimes focusing on presentations of technologies like there's a wheelchair that can actually climb stairs and exoskeletons and all these futuristic sci-fi looking devices. And you say, instead of being so excited about a sci-fi wheelchair that can climb stairs, how about we install more ramps? You know, a ramp is a technology as well. It's just lower Mm -hmm. tech and a lot less expensive. It lasts longer. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's much more widely accessible. Technology is not bad. This is not an anti-technological position. It's rather, how do we choose the best technology that's going to serve the most people for the longest period of time with the least need for upkeep? And that seems to apply very much to your concept of technoableism. Yeah, we really lack the investment we should uh, when it comes to transforming the built environment. So much of the built environment could be made better, but there are lots of holdups to do it. And often people paint disabled people as just not trying hard enough when we can't get into or operate in spaces. I see this, you know, sometimes with different acoustical challenges uh, where where the sound is all wrong, so we can't be there for as long. I think about this with some of my um, autistic friends who might have sensory processing issues where if a space is like rowdy, right? Rowdy with noise, and I don't know how to how to describe it otherwise, they they maybe can show up. They can maybe be there for a little while, but it will cost them, right? And in sort of like ability to process things later, Um, you know, it might lead to, um, you know, at at the worst sort of meltdown and sort of chronically, if this is like their workspace that they go to every day, autistic burnout is a thing that that can happen and be like just incredibly debilitating. So what was, you know, a sort of manageable disability situation, right? Being autistic itself you know, may mean that you need to modify your environment in particular ways and then think about scheduling and, you know, might might have been manageable in the wrong environment actually can make things really unmanageable in life. That can be a huge difference between whether people can work and go to school and enjoy the life milestones that non-disabled people take for granted. I think we fetishize these wheelchairs that can climb different things um, or or exoskeletons as, as an example of, of what's thought as a replacement for a wheelchair, which, of course, lots of wheelchair users are not in wheelchairs because they're paraplegic, um, right? Lots of them are, are using it for other reasons, you know, fatigue, different types of joint pain, mobility issues. Um, I think about POTS, um, you know, where you stand up too fast and you fall down um, or you might not be able to stand up for prolonged periods of time. It's very, it's a great technology that's multi-purpose, right? For many different types of populations, wheelchairs are great. And the sort of idea that the problem with disability is the wheelchair itself is a really misguided notion that lots of wheelchair users speak up against. But there's also like, Every few months, I see like a new engineering team at a university. They've made this exoskeleton. It's a proud announcement. And it's just sort of the chronic sort of devaluation of your mode of mobility all the time and thinking that you need this very expensive thing that will be impossible to maintain and you won't be able to afford rather than just making a ramp on a building, which is an easy technology to create. And it's it's really backwards. And this is not just with things like exoskeletons. So often examples of wheelchairs play really well because when people think disability, they think wheelchair, it's in the iconography of disability. But this is the sort of critique we're seeing from, say, deaf people who keep seeing projects about sign language gloves, 
these these hit the news every maybe it's less often than exoskeletons but it's an it's a ramping up ramping up oh puns where there are lots of critics of sign language which gloves of course sign language is a language that isn't just about your hands it's about your facial expressions your eyebrows the way you move your body and the sort of things these gloves will never capture it talks about the gloves as sort of like translators but the reason we have sign language interpreters rather than translators is because the one-to-one translation just doesn't make sense, right? The same sign can mean three different things depending on how you hold your face. Um, so, so it like really misunderstands sign language as a language. And often these projects are done in the absence of deaf people who, who are knowledge bearers about their culture and, and community. And it's not just sign language gloves and exoskeletons. Those make the news a lot. But Jaypreet Verdi has done this wonderful, it's a really wonderful book called Hearing Happiness. And it's about deafness cures through history. So she's a historian of disability and technology. And she, and she's also deaf. She looked at different like advertisements of different hearing cures over like the last 150 years. She doesn't even get to cochlear implants um, until like the very end to, to talk about it briefly. But every sort of snake oil you can imagine you know every you know 10 to 20 years it's a new thing here's the thing that's going to cure deafness and I really I got got to talk to her about this at one point Um, I got to interview her she mentioned how what it is to be deaf and to constantly encounter these things so every time deafness is brought up people think oh deafness needs a cure right they've seen the advertising that's been part of our culture for a long time, that if it's about deafness, we need to think about, oh, what's the cure, right? So you can't just be deaf and be okay. People think that there's something wrong that needs addressing, even if you're not saying, I'm having trouble. It's this presumption. And I, you know, I take this case of deafness um, because I really like this book, but I think there are lots of technologies that non-disabled people imagine as helping disabled people that don't actually respect our lives and our experiences um, or or even speak to who they think these objects will speak to. You know, Liz Jackson has this whole um, hashtag, which let's not talk too much about Twitter, but the hashtag disability dongle historically is very interesting to look at. It's where um, Liz Jackson would show us different technologies. And, you know, have other people bring up the technologies. Exoskeletons are one example where people in the disability community would react to a disability technology created for disabled people that definitely didn't include any disabled people in the planning. This is this is sort of what a disability dongle is. It's a she has a much better explanation, but it's like a perfectly elegant solution to a problem that doesn't exist. It's, it's a, and I, I like that we have like a community, oh, here's the hashtag, well, we'll make fun of this together. Right. Um, it's really a community building exercise. <laughs> I wanted to talk a little bit about your final chapter, which is called Accessible Futures. In a lot of books that I feature on this show, the final chapter is here's some suggested fixes or improvements that could address some of the problems that were brought up earlier in the book. This book does something a little bit different. You had a a provocative, surprising, and I thought a very persuasive section on disabled astronauts. And you're making a strong case about why we should have disabled astronauts. And when I started reading your argument, I thought, huh, this is unusual. And by the end, I thought, she's right. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good. (laughs) Um... I'd never thought of this before. But you give several examples of why astronauts with disabilities would actually function better than the super fit, you know, all around uh, super athletes that currently go up into space. Mm-hmm. One of the examples you give is that NASA is always working on toilets where astronauts, I don't know how much I can say um, astronauts need to go number two. I'll just say that. I think I can say that. And it's tough for the toilet to, in space, in a zero-gravity environment, to, uh, you know, let's say, to deal with that. And you said, why not put up astronauts who have ostomy bags? (laughs) Problem solved. Yeah. This is my friend, uh, Mallory K. Nelson, and I have talked about this off and on for years. 
I don't know how to describe early versions of astronaut toilets, but I will say that pooping in space is more complicated than you would realize because gravity plays a much larger role in your use of the toilet than you know. You know, the first several, more than several uh, missions, you know, we're talking like Mercury and Apollo, they just didn't want anyone to go number two. Like the plan was your foods are going to have no fiber in them. <laughs> and you're going to worry about that when you're back on Earth. And sort of like what happens if you don't go? The first toilets were like... um they weren't toilets and there was no place to do it except like in the middle of the ship with your friends um, and involved um, like a plastic bag. It was designed by NASA though. So it was a pretty good plastic bag um, that you would sort of like tape to part of yourself and, and do some other things. Um, and this is why astronaut diapers are a much better idea than anyone realizes. I know people make fun of that astronaut lady who wore that diaper for 25 hours to drive and like confront her lover. But um, there are a lot of really good absorbing polymers and diapers these days. <laughs> um, uh, but if you had people with ostomies, um, sort of the question of pooping in space solves itself, right? You already have a bag that is taped to you that handles this. Um, and in fact, the recreation of that for other parts of your body is less good. Uh, we have a pretty good system here on earth uh, for, for people who need to bypass their colons. Yeah, it, it would save us a lot of time and effort for engineering toilets, which often break or of mouth, like, the testing of toilets in space has also been a really interesting part of NASA's history. You also bring up that congenitally deaf people don't get motion sickness, yeah. which I'd never considered. And of course, astronauts have to go through rigorous training to get them used to floating around in, in zero G, which can make them motion sick. And that simply wouldn't happen if, if we were sending up deaf astronauts. Yeah, and in the 1960s, NASA hired a whole bunch of deaf men to study them to find out why they were so good um, at not having a reversal of fortune, as they put in the competitive eating world, um, as they were going through all these maneuvers. <laughs> right. Motion sick. And yeah, they recruited 11 deaf men from Gallaudet University, which is a, um, a university in D.C. that does all of their instruction in ASL and English. Um, and it's a very elite deaf institution. And NASA recruited them and they went through all the same tests as early astronauts did. And NASA thought that they were superior in this regard, but none of them were ever considered for a mission, even though objectively superior at handling all the sort of like rocking around and things that are gonna happen in a space situation. You have a few other examples, which I won't go through, but your your point that you're driving at is that in space, everyone is disabled to some extent. I mean, the, mm -hmm. the human body is not built to float around in zero Gs. So why not put people there who are already familiar with being flexible and dealing with uncertainty? In fact, uncertainty is one of the last points you make in the book, which is there's a lot of uncertainty in today's world. And we're all trying to figure out how to adapt and how to be uh, flexible for whatever's coming at us. And, and you're right, to grapple with the uncertain future, we would be well served to listen to disabled experts. That was a really helpful point. No, oh, thank you. No, I mean, it's a thing I think about in my own life quite a bit. Like, what is the what is the big difference between disabled and non-disabled people? And of course, disability is sort of a socially constructed category that blind people, people with depression and amputees are all in the same group is a social product, right? Disability, you know, you can find amputees in the fossil record. Uh, but, you know, there's a sense in which we've always existed as amputees, but we may or may not have been considered in this category of disability. And there are even disabilities, like I talk about, um, in a world where no one can read, we don't know who has dyslexia, right? These sort of things that are sort of socially determined is not that people did or didn't have dyslexia. It just wouldn't have been a category that would have made a difference in anyone's life or been identified. You know, how we set up the world and our expectations 
sort of determine who gets counted as disabled. But one of the things that I think makes disabled people distinct from non-disabled people, um, and I don't think it's all non-disabled people, I think there are lots of other life experiences that might speak to the ability to think about and live with uncertainty. I think about different refugee groups um, um, where their lives have been yanked out from under them in, in, in their own way too. But most disabled people are grappling with more uncertain futures just as a part of their daily life than, than non-disabled people are, right? We know that our health can fail. Um, and it's expected, you know, if you're disabled as a youngster, you'll acquire more disabilities as you age. So sort of aging looks different, uh, you know, in, in sort of our expectations. Of course, anyone can be, dis be disabled, you know, in, in the blink of an eye. But I don't know that all non-disabled people think about the ways that they're going to be more disabled in the future, where every disabled person I know thinks about the ways they're going to be more disabled in the future. Um, so we're, we're, we're unique in planning for the future that we know that it's already never what we expect. And there's also a sense in which emergency planning has often left disabled people out and we are sorely aware of that, right? What it means when the power grid goes down in Texas is very different for a disabled person than for a non-disabled person. If you're someone who relies on a ventilator to breathe, if you're someone who needs um, different medication refrigerated, what uncertainty means is much more dramatic. Um, and more dramatic in the face of natural disaster or human-made disaster for that matter. Um, so I think that the acute awareness is also one of the, the, these differences that I think grows with your disability identity sometimes too. Again, the book is called Against Technoableism, Rethinking Who Needs Improvement. And I appreciate you putting in all the work it took to research and write the book, Ashley, this strikes a blow for bringing improvement to the people who really need it. <laughs> and I, I count myself among them. I learned a lot by reading this book, and I hope listeners will take a look at it as well. Ashley Shu, thanks so much for being on this show. My pleasure. Thank you. back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host for the remaining 14 minutes of the show. And then It's Complicated comes on. And I think we have a little surprise for you. I think it's not Dave Mandel. I think it's the great, the only DJ Erwin Chusid guest hosting I'm looking forward to that. I hope you will stay tuned for It's Complicated and then Bad Animals and then Brother Daniel Blumen with his eponymous show 9 p.m. to 12 mid-eastern. Midnight, that is. <laughs> Thanks again to Ashley Shu for joining me for that great interview talking about her book Against Technoableism, Rethinking Who Needs Improvement. As I said at the end, um, I... I understand that subtitle for myself anyway. I need improvement. I need improvement on how I understand and how I'm aware of other people's experience of, of the built environment and, and the other aspects that we talked about and, and, a, and a better way of thinking about technology. Why do we continue to hear about exoskeletons and wheelchairs that can climb stairs when we could just put in more ramps. And as Ashley Shu put it so succinctly, wheelchairs are not the problem. Wheelchairs work really well. We don't need to keep reinventing quote-unquote fixes to wheelchairs because they are not broken. <laughs> the book is full of insights like that. If you're interested um, in the topic, I, I would recommend that you get the book. There is a link to the book uh, from a non-monopolistic bookstore actually goes to book, bookshop.org, which, which links you to all kinds of independent bookstores. There's a link to the book Against Technoableism on the playlist. 
at WFMU.org. And uh, again, click playlists and comments. We had a good uh, conversation on the playlist uh, this evening, talking about the various themes. There was a bunch of pointers. Um, Web Hamster Henry had a bunch of pointers to books and projects and awards, all having to do with music and uh, music assistive uh, de- devices. Just just check out, go to the playlist and look up Web Hamster Henry's comments and click on all those links. I was clicking them throughout the, throughout the interview. After all, I've heard the interview before, so I feel like it's okay for me to click some of those links. Um, there was also a, a, a few comments from, from listener Ortho Francis talking about having done, quote, several hundred amputations. So I suppose Ortho Francis is an orthopedist. Uh, Ortho Francis writes, quote, a significant amount of the amputations I do are from nicotine use because a previous comment was, was about diabetes. But here, Ortho Francis says nicotine use, um, in parentheses, peripheral vascular disease, which which uh, Ashley mentioned as a as a source of um, as a source of amputations. Ortho Francis continues. Remember, nicotine that is vaping, chewing, patches, all of those still have the same effect. Nicotine also slows down bone healing, and single cigarettes can increase infection rate. And then says, okay, that's the end of the orthopedics course for today. <laughs> but I, I appreciate it. You know, we, we, we have a little bit of health knowledge coming from WFMU listeners that's topical to the interview. I'm here for it. And I'm, I'm, happy, to, um, I'm happy to learn alongside everybody else. Uh, listener Castor writes, uh, hi, Mark. This reminds me of what I've read about transhumanism. The transhumanists take this condescending attitude and apply it to human bodies in general, that to be made of mortal flesh itself is a, quote, disability that they want to evolve beyond. And I thought that was a, a, a really good connection. I hadn't thought of the transhumanist angle, but it's true. That, I mean, thinking about exoskeletons and ways of using technology to amplify uh, human abilities, there is that sense within the trans and uh, the 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 modest amount of reading and study I've done on transhumanism. Uh, I have I've noticed the same thing that there's a tendency in that community to look at human bodies as uh, as a burden, and if we can just slough off these human bodies and you know upload our minds into the celestial cloud somewhere. We will live forever, and we will never have to worry about physical meat bodies ever again, as though it's just this, this curse that we have to walk around in, the, in these physical bodies. And if you want to, which, of course, I, I, I disagree with, uh, but if you want to explore the transhumanist uh, perspective a little bit on a tectonic show, go back to April 11, 2022. I spoke to artist and author Sasha Stiles, who had written uh, a book called Technology. And uh, you can listen to the interview. I don't think that Sasha would identify as a transhumanist, but I think that she saw some some interesting aspects. So we were, it was interesting to talk with her because there was a different perspective. It was not fully negative from Sasha about transhumanism. Um, and and w- believe in the end of the interview, we talked about a a an early stage robot that had a large language model uh, that was powering it. This is a couple of years before Chat GPT. So again, uh, April 11, 2022. You can check that out. Um, finally, I want to say a word about disability dongles. Now, um, the word dongle. Listener Tim asks, "What does a dongle do?" Serious question. I know the term, but never learned what it means. Now, let me, let me, <laughs> everyone sit back because let me tell you a little anecdote from the early 1990s when I had uh, an internship at an uh, at a, uh, engineering company and I had to deal with a dongle. And the, the dongle at the time was a a physical thing that you plugged into. This was pre-USB ports, but it was the version in the early 1990s of USB ports. I believe we called them PCMCIA ports, but someone can correct me on the board. 
But anyway, whatever the port was on the PC, you had to plug this thing in before you ran an expensive piece of software. And basically, that was the license. So it, it, the whatever, I forget what software it was or what company made it, but they knew that a lot of their software was pirated. And so in order to make sure that you were an actual purchaser of the product, when they sent you the software, they would send you this 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 computer chip looking thing that you would have to plug into the PC anytime you wanted to use the software, which is a pretty foolproof way of making sure someone actually bought the software because you you know you you can only uh, plug in the dongle if if you bought it if you if you bought the dongle along with the software. The problem, of course, is on the customer side. If the customer ever loses the dongle, that's it. You're never using the software again. Anyway, that's what a dongle is. A disability dongle is this thing that is like a dongle where it's a little bit annoying that you have to always find this extra piece of technology. Why do we have to have this? Someone forced us to use this. And in the disability world, and again, this is, I learned this from Liz Jackson, and I put a link to Liz Jackson's piece from uh, April 2022. Uh, it's a piece called Disability Dongle. And it says, a disability dongle is a well-intended, elegant, yet useless solution to a problem we never knew we had. Disability dongles are most often conceived of and created in design schools and at IDO. <laughs> and that's just a quote from the piece. You can read the whole thing on the playlist, what a disability dongle is. And it goes into examples of these, these technologies that... Non-disabled people said, I know how we can solve this particular disability or we can solve this particular problem that disabled people have. We will come up with a technology that does A, B, and C. And they go through the entire design process without ever talking to a disabled person once about what their experience is and what their needs really are. And, and, and so you get these disability dongles, these, these elegant but useless inventions and that's that's where you get the wheelchairs climbing the stairs when the disability uh the disabled community says ramps ramps why don't you why don't you talk to us ramps there's nothing wrong with wheelchairs <laughs> but you know these these um these fancy new technologies they get design awards and people get get feted as these genius innovators and so on and it, and it's all great for them it's just not so great for the people that the technology was supposed to be serving uh, the very people that the designers should have talked to first before they went into the design process that's a, a pet peeve of mine i think you can tell but anyway read the disability dongle piece i'm so glad that um, ashley shu brought that up and finally one last a bit from the IEEE, that's, that's a, in the engineering world, it's a very prestigious organization. It's the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers. Again, the IEEE, and their publication is called IEEE Spectrum. So from February of 2022, there was an article with a headline, Their Bionic Eyes Are Now Obsolete and Unsupported. And it tells a story of this company called Second Sight, which uh, created these bionic eyes that could be implanted in, in people to, to, to give them sight. And the, the, the company, I, it, it just it went belly up or it got bought or there, there was some major event that prevented the company from supporting those products anymore. And so everyone who had these very expensive implants they're just, it's like tough, okay? That's, that's it. And again, as Ashley said, one more example of the disabled community having to be able to be flexible when the future is uncertain. And you, as we know on this show, you cannot count on tech companies to be around to serve you. So that's about all the time I have tonight. Thanks again to Ashley for being with us and opening this conversation. Um, friends, you are listening to the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Until next time, here's what I want you to do. I want you to avoid Apple, abandon Amazon, forget Facebook, and whatever you do, get off Google. And I want to say thanks to listener Wenzo and DJ Erwin Chusid for pointing me 
to this outro track. Yes, I'm playing it, Irwin. It is the song by Sweat and So called Kill the Internet. And I want you to stay tuned for It's Complicated because it's not going to be complicated. It's going to be lucid with Irwin Chusid. Have a great week, everybody, and I'll see you next time.
skin up and loosen up the thumbs by bumping out the black tar water. Made myself real by ripping out magazines and staving off disease by bumping out the black tar water. Guns there.